What's going on, everyone? This will be episode 86 of the Strength and Success Show. Waiting for Riley to hop on. We took about a three or four week hiatus. Uh, I think it was about four weeks. Uh, she had some travel. I had some travel. And then just something kind of like popped up last minute, a little bit of emergency. So we uh, decided to just push it off one more week. And here we are. So episode 86, progress equals happiness. And there's, there's Riley there. So she'll send the join request. There we go. to your questions. People have sent us questions in our story Q&As and people have also sometimes dropped questions on the live. We usually answer back and forth between both. Uh, probably sometimes happens on the questions in the live. What's happening, Riley? Hello. How you doing? Fantastic. I see you've matched the balloons behind you. <laughs> <laughs> I was looking at that when I logged on. I was like, oh, that's very, that's very festive. <laughs> <laughs> Well-decorated background. I, I keep it plain and simple and look at you with the fiesta going on. <laughs> I like I like how you say you keep it plain and simple with your own name back there. <laughs> Can I get any more egotistical than that? <laughs> Self-promotion self is good. Yeah, this is this is where people are like, yeah, that, that Jaffe guy. They don't know my first name. It's just that Jaffe guy. Hey, you're that Jaffe guy. You're the guy on the internet. You're, uh, you're lucky that it's uh, even Jaffe. Sometimes it's that Jeff guy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I love that when I get DMs like, hey, Jeff. I'm like, who the fuck is Jeff? <laughs> I'm like, all right, so you're telling me you can't read. I understand. <laughs> all right, episode 86, progress equals happiness. Um, this is something that's really, really interesting. We've talked about a lot briefly in many, many episodes and led to it on other occasions. Um, one of the hardest things for athletes to do is to choose goals. And they'll usually say something like this, like, what do you think my goal should be? It's like, I can't choose your goals for you because they have to mean something to you. And that's why it's difficult to choose goals because you can arbitrarily say, I want to squat 500, or you can arbitrarily say, I want to run, you know, uh, two miles. But if it doesn't mean anything to you, you're probably very unlikely to actually achieve it. So your goals have to mean something first. That's why it makes that, that's hard, you know, to find. So it makes it hard to find um, your actual want the desire when you goal set then when you have a big grand goal the downside of that is it's a long way away and it can lead to a lot more frustration than happiness if you're not willing to focus on those short-term things that come up in between that you have achieved on your way there uh, greg panora put a post up recently that kind of talks about this like if you set a goal if you squat like four i don't remember what the exact post was i'm paraphrasing he's like if you squat 450 and set a goal to squat 500 in your next meet and you only squat 474 are you really gonna be mad about it like dude you've increased your squat 24 pounds <laughs> and that's what people don't see and this story has been told like three or four different times by three or four different people and i, I it's probably like david goggins from probably where i remember from but he talked about when he first started running and he went outside and he was in awful shape and it was like let me just make it down to the stop sign and back let me the next couple times like let me make it to the next stop sign and back and the next stop sign and back you know he wasn't like let me go run a hundred mile race that was the grand goal it wasn't the short-term goal that stacked the happiness and the progress that kept you to it. And that's one of the reasons, because we're coming after the new year here, and that's one of the reasons why people tend to fall off on their New Year's resolutions is, one, it doesn't mean enough to them, but two, they're not looking at the short-term things. So if, let's say, for example, someone set a goal of, I don't want to drink in 2023, the first goal should be to drink for an entire year. The first goal should not be to drink for the first day and then for the first week. And if you made the first week, cool, let's see if I can make two weeks. Let's see if I can make three weeks. Those little things that are keeping you towards the goal, whatever your goal is, are what's going to stack your happiness. That's the progress. Progress creates happiness. And if you can't measure the small little steps of progress, 
you're going to create frustration and unhappiness and give up on the goal because it seems so far out of reach. You haven't psychologically set yourself up for success. You've set yourself up for failure to the goal because you haven't looked at small indicators along the way. We do this in powerlifting. Like if you, you know, if you bench hundred pounds, and you want to bench 105. Well, if you were able to bench like 90 for three, chances are you're getting closer. That's progress. If you bench 95 for two, that's progress. And then eventually it becomes hundred for two. And then you know what, you've got your 105. That's progress. But if it's every time you just went in there and tried 105 and you're just testing, you're not building. And, and that's what we have to learn is to appreciate the building process. And that's what's going to make us happy. The small steps on the building process are what make us happy. Yeah, it's those compounding stepping stone goals, uh, like we talked about before. And I can tell you how many times like a client will send me, it's usually always, it's always bench video, uh, but they'll send me a bench video and it's like them, they're like, oh, I failed, I failed my bench today. And I'm like, okay, well, that's okay. And like, you know, we talk, talk through it, like whatever led up to it, blah, 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 you know, discuss like what happened, what caused um, the miss or what have you. And then they're like, yeah, but this had before it, I hit a PR, but they're so hyper-focused on the fact that they like failed that they don't even recognize that they did hit the PR. And like, like kind of like you're talking about, if you set a goal for yourself to squat like 315 uh, and your current squat PR is I don't know, 275 and you hit 300, but you're mad that you haven't hit, that you didn't hit 315, but you just hit a 45 pound PR, like kind of missing the point here, or at least missing those stepping stone goals that are in between. Um, if you're not making any progress then yeah, you have every right to be frustrated, but that's also probably your fault. Uh, most of people's lack of progress is their own fault. And not being able to recognize your progress is going to keep you in that like negative thought loop. And you're always going to feel like you're inadequate because you haven't established like, okay, my squat goal is 315. I'm currently at 275. Okay, well, if I hit 295, that's 20 pounds. That's still progress, even if I'm not totally satisfied with it not being 315. And then you get to the 295. And you're like, okay, if I had 10 more pounds, then I'm at 305. You know, and so it's like these kind of compounding small little things are kind of essentially more important than the larger goal. And it also tells you a lot about your own character and what you're willing to do. And like Trevor mentioned, if it doesn't mean a lot to you, it's you're not going to care enough or it's going to be easier to quit, in my opinion. Like if you don't care about the goal, it's easier to quit. Um, if your goal is to squat the 315, but you're like, you know, this isn't for me. I haven't, I haven't hit this goal and it's been three months. Uh, I, this isn't for me. I can't do it. You probably didn't care that much. Like it was, you, I'm sure you wanted it, but like you didn't, you didn't want to do the things that were necessary for it. And that's like, a, that's something that we've talked about in plenty of episodes before is that like, you can have a goal, but if you're not willing to do what's necessary for the goal, you don't really want it. Right. And like, that's okay. You know, like you don't have to, you don't have to want an arbitrary goal because that's what you feel like you're supposed to be doing within powerlifting. Um, I know that a lot of people feel like they need to compete. Like I have clients that will come to me and they're like, you know, I really don't have any plans to compete. Will you still work with me? And it's like, I don't care. Those aren't my goals. Like you said at the very beginning, like it's not my job to establish your goal or choose what meet you do or anything like that. My job is to help you get strong in like whatever your specific goal is. So if it's not to make it to the platform and it's just that you want to increase your numbers and you want to be more confident in the gym, whatever, that's, that's what my job is to help you do that. So being more honest with yourself about your goals helps. It makes it a little bit easier for you to recognize the progress that you're making along the way. Yeah, I have, I have like three or four clients right now that have zero aspirations of ever competing or ever competing again. Some of them have already competed. Um, and I'm okay with that. That's not my goal is to have every athlete I coach be a competitive lifter. I just, I'm gonna put them in a powerful format because that's what they're coming to me for. But they wanna make progress. They wanna enjoy the process. They're doing well. And I'm happy to provide that service for them. 
but it's not on me or you, like you said, to choose the meat, choose the goal, hit the targets. Like that's not how this works because if it's your goal, it's going to be your work. All I can do is give you the path and information and correct form and cues and encourage, but I can't make you do things that has to come from you. And that's where I was talking in the beginning is like the goal is the hardest part. And then the second hardest part is recognizing small steps of progress along the way, because otherwise you're going to be frustrated and miserable if you can't see any type of progress. You have to look at those small steps. You know, if, you're, if your journey requires a thousand steps and you've taken one step, cool, that's progress. You managed to take two, cool, progress. Three and so on. Recognize that you took those steps because those are your wins and those, those little wins is what creates your happiness and why you enjoy the process. Exactly. Also, since you're wearing the shirt and before we get into questions, uh, the internet and everyone and like 7,000 people are, uh, have been watching you on the table talk that you want to save date. <laughs> that was a cool experience. Uh, anyone, I mean, Pyro thing's a little bit different from this era, from my era when I started in the sport. You know, Elite FTS was a very big deal. It still is a big deal to me and to many people, but Elite FTS and which kind of spawned off from Westside because Dave Tate was a, a, you know, a big prime member of Westside and wrote a lot of articles and really helped grow powerlifting, even though people, you know, he was from a geared era and he even talks about how the geared era is really small. There's only like, there's less than a thousand active multiply lifters right now. Um, sorry to them. I, I still appreciate it, but it's like one of those things where raw has over 110,000. I think he said he looked up an open powerlifting worldwide where multiply has less than a thousand active members, which was a really interesting stat. But it, it grew in that era, and they were leaders in educating people on sports performance, powerlifting, strongman, business. Uh, there are other aspects, nutrition. So a lot of the information that's out there, good or bad, is still maintained. Like Dave talks about having a million articles on there, a million pages of information. Some of them are, are not, and he discussed in the podcast, some of the things that they used to teach aren't accurate for the raw lifters, such as the mechanics and whatnot. But it was still a tremendous experience. You know, Dave is someone who I've always looked up to and wanted to meet and talk to. When I was at the XPC, I saw him. He just looked like he was in a ton of pain and grumpy, and I'm not the time. So I was really excited when they gave me the invite to come on there and fly out, and I jumped at the chance. Um, we had an almost three-hour conversation on the table talk, but we had talked before that in the morning for like an hour, and then after the table talk, we talked for another two and a half hours. He's just someone you can sit down to, and it's, it, it's a – I have known him, but he's never known me, but I have known him for, you know, 20 plus years. So it was, and it feels like I've known him for 20 years. We had a conversation about the history of different things and sports that went on. Uh, literally the only reason why the conversation ended up like, because he had to pee. <laughs> he's like, I got to pee. And normally that's my gig. Um, but it was really, really a great experience to go into that building. They've had five different compounds. This is the S5 compound now. And there's just like a lot of history, even though that's a different building, there's just a lot of history in those walls and people that I looked up to or read or admired or learned from came through there. And people have learned actually gonna be honest, what not to do because they have different, you know, mechanics and form. But it was a really a surreal experience. It lived up to the hype I expected it to of going there. It was a joy. I hope I one day get to go back and, and talk more. It's really, really awesome. The response and feedback, I've heard nothing but positive reviews and feedback from the conversation we had. That was really cool. Some people have even listened to it like multiple times. I know someone, I think Duke was like, when your voice cracked and started talking about that fear, he's like, I started bawling. <laughs> so I can make grown men cry with my emotions. I've done my job, right? Yeah. Uh, the one I was going to, because you said it was like a really great experience. What is like, what was something that you, that, how do I want to put it? Like it was better than what you expected. Like what is something about that whole experience that was actually went better than you expected? Uh, the conversation.
presentation was fantastic. But what I really admire about Dave was he was willing to admit he was wrong. And uh, I thought that was really, really cool because I didn't expect him to, to actually say that. A lot of the information Elite FTS still puts out is geared mostly towards conjugate training, multiply training, and the whole nine. And a lot of people have had that outside because people have had conversations with me that had that outside perspective that Elite FTS hasn't kept up with the sport as it's evolved, as it's gone raw, and hasn't changed their perspective. And Dave was willing to admit that, hey, you know, there's a lot of things that we taught or did, and we talked about on the podcast, you know, that were wrong or not accurate. It's what we knew then. It's what we knew then, and it's evolved from that. And he's like, I, I like to see people continue to take that path and journey and evolve. That was something that took me by surprise because I didn't expect it. It's very difficult to say we didn't know or I didn't know. You know, a lot of people will just defend it as like, well, that's all I was taught. But he's gone out of his way to seek out even more information, even more knowledge. Um, I took a picture, I have it it's in like three pictures of his bookshelf because people laugh at the amount of books and eBooks and things I have because that question they get so often is what book should I read? I'm like, fucking all of them, read all of them, inform yourself and make your own decisions and opinion and test and apply. And Dave has more books and journals and magazines than I've seen anybody else have. And he's of the exact same opinion. He's like, you should be reading absolutely everything, even if it doesn't directly evolve to your sport, so you can learn, test, and apply, and then pass that down, which was spectacular to me to have, you know, somebody I, I've read from and learned from a lot have the exact same theories and opinions now, even though they weren't his then, but it was really cool to have that, that um, I don't want to say connection is the wrong word, but unified vision, I should say. Yeah, uh, live, learn, pass on, like they say. Yep. But uh, uh, you have content coming out from them too. I know that you filmed like a lot of tutorials and whatnot while you were there to hopefully share. Yeah, I mean, I hope they distribute them. Their videographer was really cool. Um, was there when I was working out and like literally as, as usual, just like always in between workouts and in between reps, I was there with their uh, shooting tutorials and content. So we shot like 10 or 11. And I really hope they push that out there because they're just gonna, they're, they're very, very helpful. At the time, one of the topics that was really a hot topic at the time was knees behind the bar for sumo. And that was one of the tutorials that I shot there and broke it down when it matters, when it doesn't matter in the whole nine. Yeah, uh, I can't imagine why they wouldn't put those out there. Obviously your tutorials are very uh, beneficial to a lot of people. <laughs> And to be vulgar <laughs> and use overly sexualized cues and then you know I'm like hey i'm still gonna be me you guys choose to use it if you want to or not i hope they do yeah i think they will it's just a matter of time i've, I've been noticing that they've been like uh, i know stacy was on before like a, a couple episodes before you mm -hmm. and they're just now pushing out like a little bit more information or content from when she was on um so i think that that will probably it'll probably just like phase out you know like they have a whole they have a whole strategy for their marketing it seems like it works really really well so i i'm assuming that they will push them out over the next couple of weeks yeah that'd be cool others uh, there's a comment it's not a question it's trevor i need to thank you for everything i really utilized your videos before i had a coach and help me progress and stay safe for everything well i appreciate that rpe cash if i hope i said it correctly i do appreciate that and that's always you know that's always the goal is to help others shorten their journey in time than mine was because with a lot of self-discovery and a lot of research in other fields and doing things, it wasn't as easy to learn when I was coming up and doing things. It's a lot easier for me to learn now than it was then because of the internet is amazing, but didn't really exist in that capacity. You know, people weren't putting those things on MySpace. <laughs> it was their top five song choices and their top five friends. It wasn't the top five ways to deadlift. So. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> All right, uh, we'll get to some questions. I think we had some left over from the last time, and then I know that you and I have done a couple Q and A's between the last episode too, so we will get to as many as possible. 
Um, one of the older ones is best advice for mentally and physically preparing for a meet. Train with intention. I can't emphasize that enough to train with intention because all of your training sessions are practice for the meet. I don't like to think when I'm at a meet at all. That's why I don't want back slaps. I don't want ammonia. I don't want smelling sounds. My emotions do not change at all in meat from gym. That was a, something I've learned along the way. I don't make the meat important. It's simply my, my training day where I'm testing to see if what I've done has worked. It is not a competition to me. Everyone's talking about being competitive. And I've said this at every seminar. If you can't beat yourself, you don't have to worry about anybody else who's there. It doesn't matter. It's not a competition, even though it's held as a competition. It's just a day of testing for you to see if what you have been doing worked. And when I'm going to say what you've been doing, it's not just your squat bench and deadlift programming. It's your lifestyle. Have you been resting? Have you been eating? Have you been prioritizing mobility? Have you been prioritizing learning more, improving your form, mechanics? Um, and then, of course, training with intention and program. Every ounce of practice is to prepare you for the game. You know, uh, the NFL team doesn't just show up on Sunday. They practice all week. That's how you prepare for the game. <laughs> and people, people like laugh, like, well, it's just training. Like, no, you're training for a reason. Be in that reason, you know, get off your phone. You should, I mean, I, I have clients and I'm sorry, I'm gonna call you all out, I hate it. If you're, if you're sending me your videos while you're training, I'm not gonna look at them, even if I'm on there because I know you're training. I don't want you to do that. I don't want you to be thinking. I don't want you to be interacting with me. I don't want that. I want you to have some level of autonomy where you can look at your video and realize, okay, I could do this a little bit better. Then send, let me look at what I can cue and say, hey, this is what I see. Can we work on this? Because if you're distracted enough to send me videos, you're saying, hang on, I got more sets. I'm still not going to reply. I don't care who you are. Nobody is that important to me except for my son that I'm going to reply um, because that's your time to physically become aware and learn because I might not Chances are I'm probably not there with you in meet day and I can't give you that pitch on meet day. So why would I give it to you in the gym when you don't have it on meet day? If you can't do it on meet day, there's no point in bringing it to you and doing it on the gym because it can't be, re it can't be replicated. You have to create some self-awareness and some self-confidence through training so you are prepared for the meet. That is how you mentally and physically prepare. I know it sounds overly simple, but that's the reality. If you put more intention and more focus into your training and get the fuck off your phone, you will have a better meet. Yeah. So basically what you're saying is the gym is not the meat, which I am also saying, but in a slightly different way, uh, is that you don't have, the gym doesn't matter in some capacity, right? Like the gym is where you go and you do your training and that's where you're building and that's where you're uh, like hitting the areas that you need to, working on things that suck, um, all that, but it is not the meat. So I do not care that you hit a PR in the gym and you blew your entire load and now you have nothing left for meat day. I don't care. Um, so I think that a problem that a lot of clients run into, especially ones that are like newer or have only done a couple of meets is they assume that they have to feel it in the gym in order to hit it on meet day. Um, the, the gym is where everything is built, but the meet day is where you show off. So when you're showing off in the gym and you're hitting this like RPE 12 and a half grinder, you know, a week out from your meet because you wanted to feel it it's not going to be there on meet day because you are, you, you wasted every ounce of energy that you had for a meet that does not, or for, excuse me, for a lift that does not count. Um, I have had lifters that ask me, when can I go heavier? Um, I'm, you know, X, Y, Z weeks out. I want to go heavier. When am I going to hit heavy singles? You only have a finite amount of heavy singles available to you at any given time. The whole point of peaking for a meet is to build you up to those 
one specific heavy singles for your squat bench and your deadlift on meet day. It is not to build you up so that way you can hit your heavy single in the gym a couple times and then miraculously somehow still have the same energy to do it in the meet. Like if you're hitting 100% of your max, it realistically can only be done one time and that's in the meet. It's, if it's 100% of your max and you're able to hit it three or four times, it's not 100% of your max anymore. Like it's, you know, like there's no, that doesn't, numbers don't work like that. So mentally for a meet, you have to be prepared that you're not going to hit all the fun stuff in the gym. All the fun stuff happens on the platform. So stop asking me if you can max out your deadlift six weeks out or nine days out, you want to feel what your, what your second attempt is going to be. Like, I don't care. No. No, if you want to have your best meet day, we're going to taper you and peak you and all that, reduce the fatigue. So that way on meet day, you have your best possible day. Um, also, this has been brought up more recently. Um, people worrying about what their openers are going to be. Like, doesn't start, doesn't matter how you start, it's how you finish. No one cares where your opener is. Uh, if you bomb out on your opener because you try to go too heavy, it, uh, that sucks. Yeah. You just, wasted, you just wasted your whole prep because you tried to go too heavy on your opener and you couldn't hit it. So um, I think that like mentally you have to realize that the gym doesn't matter. Like it doesn't count. It doesn't, it's not the gym or it's not the meet day. Like it's not going to be an open power lifting. Like, oh, you know, Riley, Riley hit a PR on her in the gym on Tuesday, but you know, we're going to give her props anyways, even though she couldn't hit it in the in meet. Like that's, that's not how it works. So mentally you have to get realistic about, okay, Okay, this is where I'm building up to my max single for the meet. Um, physically, you kind of touched on it, uh, making sure that your life, lifestyle choices are good. You're sleeping, you're eating, you're hydrating. Um, you're not, you know, staying up until 4 a.m. and then trying to train at 8 a.m. Or you're not eating 500 calories and wondering why everything feels heavy. Or you, the only thing that you drink in a day is like, I don't know, apple juice or something. But uh, like that's physically you just have to do what's necessary it's kind of like what we talked about in the beginning if your goal doesn't matter to you you won't be driven to work hard for that goal so just do the things that you're supposed to do just follow the plan it's really it's not complicated like just follow the plan you eliminate doubt by doing what you're supposed to do you know you have doubt because you know you didn't do what you're supposed yeah. to do <laughs> I mean, i've been there you know like i've had doubt because you're like wait a minute do i deserve this you're like all right you fucked up yeah i mean i've had plenty of times within my training and like at meets where I'm like, man, I really, I know that I haven't been doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Like I haven't been eating or hydrating or whatever, uh, managing my stress, pushing myself as hard as I can. And those were not my greatest meets. And like, that's all right. Like for me, uh, not having the best meet every single time is fine. Cause I don't have like an end. I don't have an end goal in sight. Like it's not like I'm saying next year in, in November is my last meet ever. No, I plan to compete for as long as I possibly can. So like, yeah, I know that I didn't do, I did myself a disservice, but I'm also, it's not the end of the world. There are more meets, like you can move forward. You just have to learn from what it was that you fucked up on. So the apocalypse is not coming, you're saying? No. All right, good, we're safe. <laughs> Maybe, I don't know. Not in our lifetime, probably, but all right. <laughs> uh, question. Um, deficit deadlifts feel better than regular, why? That tends to be when someone doesn't use their legs very well from their start. And now that could be a couple combination of things. It could be poor lat engagement and not knowing how to get tight to the bar and your hips pop up. So you end up doing like a RDL style deadlift, or it's just that it puts you in a more optimal position. 
So there's two ways to look at this. If the deficit deadlift feels better, obviously we don't want to have you deficit deadlifting all the time just because it feels better, but you have to get a takeaway from that. Either you're not able to use your quads in the, in the actual regular deadlift and you need to figure out why, or you don't know how to use your back in there and figure out why. Now, for some people, the deficit deadlift and is, feels better just because they are getting more leg drive and less back work because they're able to drive in their quads. It could be a switch of a couple different things. So if you have good back tension, and the deficit deadlift feels better, then chances are you probably need to widen your deadlift grip, which is actually going to add some range of motion to that deadlift, but it's going to give you a better position to drive off of your legs. You see this often where someone tries to grab too close to shorter distance and they actually end up in the way of their legs and then their legs can't do anything and they end up pushing their legs in and their hips pop up. So sometimes it's just a matter of opening your grip if you have great back tension. But I would look at your difference between your regular conventional deadlift and your deficit deadlift and see what the positional change is. If it's just the legs, then you need to find a way to get more legs in there. Widen your actual conventional grip so there's more room for your legs to travel forward over the bar so you can quad drive. If it's your hips pop up on a conventional deadlift and you're not using your legs very well, then it's probably poor lat engagement. You need to work on learning how to emphasize lat engagement by either externally rotating the bar, squeezing the bar hardest your lats are tight, or using the forward banded deadlift where you can actually work on pulling the bar back into you. I even, even for this, I also like like the halting deadlifts, whatever stance that you pull, like, well, I guess this would be conventional only. Um, but because I, I don't like deficit sumo, but um, like a halting conventional deadlift is really beneficial for that if you're not able to hold your lat tension in position, because it's forcing you to lower the bar how you would normally for a deadlift, but then hover it there. So you're constantly having to squeeze that lat tension and hold the position. And it's also going to generate tension in your legs because you're actually having to pause it and hold it there and then still generate power to stand back up. So something like a deficit, or excuse me, something like a halting deadlift, um, I find to be really beneficial in that specific thing. And like my, my deficit conventional is pretty good compared to my normal conventional. And I get a lot of carryover from halting deadlifts for that specific reason too. My, my deficit conventional max my conventional from the floor it's the same it's like 655 661 same weight from the floor deficit conventional and yet the deficit actually feels better because <laughs> i'm quad driven <laughs> like my sumo my sumo is very quad driven thoracic extension and quad driven so they feel identical to me there's no real change between a deficit and a regular conventional except uh it feels better to me to actually pull from the conventional because i can stay on my quads where the regular one hits my hamstrings more and i am missing part of my hamstring and left adductors that's probably why it's tougher for me because i can't hip extend as well there but it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, if, if the variation feels better, what's that variation giving you? Mm -hmm. And in most cases, it's giving you more quad drive. So that's where I would start to look first and see. Yeah, I think my are like 25 pounds difference, so nothing crazy. Yeah. But not yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. What are reasons for using accommodating resistance? It's cool. And everybody on the ground loves it when you use accommodating resistance because it's RPE air, bro. <laughs> so it's overcoming the strength curve. As you get closer to full extension, your body tends to naturally decelerate. So it's overriding that mechanism where your body slows down the golden tendon uh, uh, organ, and it slows you down towards the top. So when you're using a common resistance like bands or chains, you then have to keep accelerating because the weight's increasing as you're getting closer to that end range. So while you're in your strongest position, the weight gets heavier and heavier and heavier. It's a way of manipulating the strength curve so you can create force all the way throughout the movement and activate more high threshold motor units. For example, if you were to take a jump, I can't have you jump slow, right? You wouldn't jump very high if I asked you to, to tempo your descent down and tempo your way up, you wouldn't get very far. So you can't jump slow, you can only jump rapidly. Your fastest possible connection to get as high as possible because there's nothing stopping at the top. So you're going to extend so you leave the floor. A 
accommodating resistance accomplishes the same thing. It hits that stretch shortening reflex and makes you activate those motor units much more on the way up. The caveat of that for the raw lifter versus the gear lifter is we don't have the support at the bottom of the lift like they do. So we don't have the support at the bottom of a bench shirt, the support at the bottom of a squat suit or the help off the floor with a deadlift suit. So you have to make sure that you're not overdoing the accommodating resistance all the time, because I've literally seen that. I talked about it on the pod, on the tabletop podcast where I saw someone posting top end weight was like 600 something. And the bottom end weight was only like 315 of straight weight. They had like 300 pounds of a common end resistance and they couldn't squat 500 to meet because they never trained anything below 350 at the bottom. That was as much as they can stabilize at the bottom. They did no bottom end work. So accommodating resistance is helpful. Uh, it's going to help you with rate of force development, which is a good thing, but you have to make sure that it's not your prime movement all the time or that you're always relying on it for the load because you're going to end up getting weak in the bottom. So you have to balance that out. I like accommodating resistance for certain things like chains more so for my squats because they add that element of stability because the chains are moving. Uh, I get a little bit more out of the speed with bands on my deadlift because it keeps me accelerating all the way up the top because I tend to break the floor very well because I have a great slack pull. So if I break the floor well and I can accelerate the top, I'm much more likely to lock out. The downside of the bands is it creates artificial stability. And if I rely on them too much, then I start teeter-tottering at the top because I've never trained a stability holding heavy weights at the top. So you have to understand the benefits, but also understand the drawbacks and how to balance that out. All about intention with the accommodating resistance. And <laughs> I don't know that we've ever, we've, we talk about accommodating resistance a lot on the podcast, but I don't know that I've ever talked about the, probably one of the only internet, internet arguments I've ever gotten in because I just do not care, uh, was like four years ago. And it was because I posted a video about using bands. And um, I'm gonna be honest, I don't even remember necessarily what, what the video was about at this point um but i remember they were pissed off because you didn't acknowledge i, I know that part yeah. i know that's not um i don't remember what i was putting in the video but um like i remember i specifically was talking about squat bench and deadlift in the bands i cannot remember what the point of my video was but anyways uh the point of that was I'm a raw lifter and I was talking to raw lifters. I only coach raw lifters. I will not coach geared lifters because that's not my thing. Go get a geared coach. Okay. Um, but the, this individual commented on my post and said, I'm surprised that you didn't say anything about overspeed eccentrics and overspeed eccentrics is essentially letting the bar drop or letting yourself drop as fast as you possibly can to hit the recoil of the band coming back up. The issue with that for a raw lifter is that if you don't create any tension in your body, you have no gear to help you. So has anyone ever just like absolutely just had a bar, like put a bar on your back and just, I, I just want you to just like sit down as fast as you possibly fucking can. Please tell me how that goes for you. Probably not great because if you're dropping as fast as you possibly can, it's likely that you will not maintain as much tension as you want. Same thing with like, if you have 135 loaded on the bar and you just let it drop absolutely to your chest, it's going to be hard to push back up because you're not creating any tension like a spring to recoil off your chest or out of the bottom of the hole or whatever. Deadlift doesn't necessarily matter because you really only have a concentric. But this person was very mad at me for not talking about overspeed eccentrics, you know, and like she, she made her original comment and I responded back um, mentioning how I didn't find that that to be beneficial for raw lifters. And uh, she went on this thing about how she would, I remember her saying explicitly, it's physics. And I was like, okay, well, you don't actually understand physics then because you have to create, it's fine, whatever. But um, she, you know, went on about like West Side and all these kind of things. And I'm like, 
again, West Side, <laughs> geared, you know, and it was like this whole big long thing. Uh, she eventually blocked me. She actually blocked Trevor too, because I think that he said something on my video about it. Um, but the whole, like the whole, my whole issue with it is that like, I was specifically speaking to raw lifters and I explicitly remember creating tension. Uh, so that way you can actually load and build the spring better out of the bottom of the lift. And it was just like, she totally missed everything that I was trying to say and just wanted to push something that wasn't necessarily beneficial to everyone. I would never tell my clients that are all raw lifters to let the bar drop as fast as you possibly fucking can to your chest and then try and push up against a band. Just not something that like I, majority of people's issue is that they cannot hold a brace or hold tension in their torso. And, uh, they need to learn to create that. So whenever I am using accommodating resistance in the form of bands, I like to still keep it slow. Like I'm not going to drop into the bottom of my squat as fast as I can just because it's bands. Like I'm still going to create my normal tension, my normal descent, the normal tempo of my descent and work on creating the tension to then just rebound out of the hole with that. Same thing with my bench. I'm going to take my normal thing. It doesn't drop faster because it's speed work. Like you don't, that's just not the point of it. The point of it is to accelerate like Trevor said, as fast as you can. Um, chains are a little bit different. I think chains are more beneficial for accommodating resistance in general. Like you mentioned, um, more or more instability to help you create more stability versus the bands create the artificial stability. So it's really it really depends on what the issue is that the lifter is having. Um, I just, I have never made someone so mad like for just, I don't know, making a video about and. I was like, here, use this orange band. She was like, ball over speed eccentrics. And I was like, okay. That's why I because I made a comment that you're, you're reiterating somebody else's concepts without understanding who they applied for. And that's why I got blocked. <laughs> uh, yeah, if you need a physical example of this, like Andy Askow and Craig Foster are two incredible dive bomb squatters. What that means is they drop down as fast as they can and come back up because of the stretch reflex. They share a commonality that both of them are super heavyweights. If you don't have tremendous mass to balance the bar, you're going to have a bad day because the force of the bar is going to crumble over. Dive bombing and fast short eccentrics can be very, very beneficial if you have a tremendous amount of mass to stabilize the bar. If you are a smaller frame lifter, generally the centrifugal force of the bar moving down is going to win that battle. So you have to know when it's applicable and when it's not applicable. And that was something she didn't understand. I got very mad that I got pointed out that she didn't understand that. <laughs> this was like a... Yeah, like I said, this was like four years ago. And I don't think that I've like, uh, I think it took me a long time to put another tutorial video up after that, because I was like, I don't want to deal with people again. Like, I don't, I do not engage with people on the internet. Like, I, if you want to argue with me, talk to yourself. I'm not arguing with you. <laughs> I will discuss with anybody, but I don't want debate. I, I do not want to debate, but I'll happily discuss. And that's something I, I have a firm uh, standing on as well. Like, you know, when people want to argue, I'm like, wrong channel, good luck. Go make your own video, don't care. But if you want to discuss concepts, I'll gladly learn or listen or educate, but I won't debate and I won't argue. It's not my job. Yeah, yep. Okay, uh, simplest sumo cues. Simplest sumo cues. Okay. Create enough tension that there's no space, tuck your pelvis into the bar, lift your tits tall. I feel like I'm just gonna go pull then push. Pull, pull your chest tall. I did, I did the video, pull in, pull up, pull under. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't get any simpler. Yeah. <laughs> pull in, pull up, pull under. Yeah. 
pull your chest tall, push the ground away with your legs. I feel like that's as simple as it can possibly get. Creating that tension that it's just a leg press. Yeah. Um, thoughts on ashwagandha? Uh, I actually take ashwagandha that when I forget taking it, I usually, it's one of those things where I, I hate to say it's like a placebo effect, but I can feel the difference. Ashwagandha is an Ayurvedic herb that is used as an adaptogen. It is like an anti-stress herb. It lowers your response to stress, lowers your cortisol levels. There is some evidence that it can like help with testosterone levels and stuff like that. I'm on TRT eating, so it doesn't matter. But it's one of those things where I actually take it and I find I get more restful sleep and a little bit better recovery aspect from the sleep, not from the ashwagandha, but from the sleep. So I, I, I like it as an adaptogen of lowering stress levels, lowering cortisol in the body. You can take it multiple times throughout the day. It doesn't make you feel sluggish or anything like that. Uh, there are some times like when I'm in like closer in prep and peak, I will take it post-workout to lower my stress response up recovery as well as at nighttime before bed. So I'm all for ashwagandha. I like adaptogens. But if you're looking for some kind of miracle response or feeling, you're not gonna you're not gonna find it. It's one of those things that you take consistently over time and just notice that you're a little bit more calm, a little bit less stressed and sleep a little bit better. Yeah. I think um, I was going to mention that I think it's good to even take like more relatively closer to bedtime because it is going to lower, lower that cortisol. So that way you can kind of sleep or like get into a deeper sleep. Or um, if you're someone who has a hard, hard time falling asleep, it will help. That. Uh, I like ashwagandha. I think it's one of the better, um, I guess it's considered a nootropic kind of in, I guess it's considered in that famula, famula, family. In some, yeah. Yeah, uh, it's in a lot of blends, but I have, I think I have a mushroom blend. Yeah, I have a mushroom blend that it's in there. And I take that daily. I take like one in the morning and one in the, in the middle of the day. I'm a little bit sensitive to dosages of things. So I either always split my dosages um, or I take half the amount because I'm sensitive. <laughs> a little flower. <laughs> yeah, uh, I like cordyceps in the morning. It's also an adaptogen. So I usually do cordyceps like breakfast and pre-workout, and then I'll take the ashwagandha nighttime all the time. Uh, closer to contest, it becomes post-training and, and nighttime as well, just to kind of calm myself and get myself back into the you know the parasympathetic, relaxed nervous system, especially since I do love the caffeine. Okay, um, cues for chest position in deads. Cues for chest position in deadlifts. So this, uh, I think this was asked from today's recently. Okay, so she said, uh, I, can, I, I can understand it and I can visualize it, but I can't do it. I'm going to be a little honest, Yanni. That means you don't understand it. <laughs> if you can visualize it and you can't do it, that means you don't understand it. So chest position in deadlifts is going to be sternum up. Uh, if you're watching the visual here, that means not your low back arches. And she does, if I remember correctly, have a pretty prominent anterior pelvic tilt. It means you're neutral, but the sternum still comes up. That's where people misunderstand chest position deadlifts. They just try and go chest up because you hear that cue all the fucking time, chest up. And what happens is they end up arching from their lumbar spine. So somebody who lacks spatial awareness ends up lumbar arching instead of thoracic extending. And there is a difference between extending your upper back and extending your lumbar spine and also cervical extension. That drives me nuts when people cervically extend their neck. And like, I am thoracically extending. I'm like, no, you're just extending your neck. Um, you have to work on segmenting that and learning how. That's why I put up the standing Kelso version so people can learn how to actually open their chest and clench their butt at the same time because your butt is a major hip extensor. So if you're arching your lumbar spine, you're putting your glutes in a very poor position to contract. You're putting them in a stretch position. They cannot contribute, which is why you struggle to then lock out because your glutes aren't contributing. You're in your low back. And your low back is not a hip extensor. It's a spine stabilizer. So you're only going to go as far as that spine wants to go. And that's why you get stuck at lockout. So you have to learn how to 
tuck the pelvis in into a posterior tilt, which is contracting the glutes, and at the same time, you're tucking the pelvis in, thoracically extend. Um, I'm a visual guy. Reverse cowgirl. <laughs> Reverse cowgirl is basically deadlift cue of tucking your pelvis, lifting your chest up. Sorry. Riley is cringing right now, but it's true. She's like, yeah, I can see it. <laughs> uh, no, I'm not. I actually don't necessarily agree with that positionally, but that's fine. Um, I'm surprised that you didn't go with the tits tall thing. <laughs> Just because I, I've seen her at Ghost, and I know that she goes into lumbar extension. So the more she tries to lift her chest up, the more she actually lumbar extends and doesn't know how to tuck her pelvis. I'm from lifter, so I remember that. Because it also, it was an issue where she was lumbar extending on bench and her butt kept popping up. And it was also an issue on squat where it challenged her depth as well. So this is someone who's dealing more with a pelvic issue and not a chest issue. And it's, it's poor lumbo-pelvic control above all else. Yeah. Uh, someone said this would be for sumo then. It, I mean, you have to thoracically extend for conventional as well. It's just going to be slightly different and probably just look a little different yeah you're you're not going to tuck your pelvis as much for conventional at the start as you would for sumo yeah um okay what are your thoughts on using pioneer bench bell for sumo uh there's more to this question right yeah he just said that uh it killed his position with a regular like if he wore a regular belt it killed his position so Beyond the bench belt, Pioneer and other manufacturers will make a tapered belt, which is a smaller front. Riley actually has a tapered belt as well because she's got a lower rib position. So if the main belt is hitting your ribs and keeping you out of position, there's no reason why you can't use a smaller belt or even go beltless if you want. There are some people who pull better, better sumo beltless. I have two different belts. My deadlift belt is a little thinner and more pliable than my squat belt, which is a Pioneer belt, which is thicker. So they're both four, four inches, but the pliability of the deadlift belt allows me to move a little bit better. So that's an, a common issue for a lot of people where the belt will hit their ribs and get them out of position. So there's no reason why you couldn't use the Pioneer belt or get a tapered belt for that so it's out of the way of your ribs and still get some of that intra-abdominal pressure from wearing the belt. I would be all, all for it, actually, if it puts you in a better position. Better position means more power. Yeah, I don't, I don't actually know what the Pioneer bench belt looks like. I, I'm not good at those things, but, uh, or I'm good at paying attention to those things. But um, I use a tapered belt from Pioneer, actually. And that is the only one that I like to use for deadlifts. Um, the difference between my beltless and my belted sumo is only like 30 pounds. I'm pretty sure my best beltless is 470. And my best belt is 501, so 31 pounds. Um, and that's with me that... It was actually when Jen was visiting once, and Jen is a, Jen Rotzinger is a small human, and she also uses a tapered belt. And, uh, uh, you know, when she was, she was lifting, and I was like, I have a very small waist, so I was like, uh, can I try that belt on? And like her, I think she has a lever. Hers is a lever, tapered lever belt, and mine's the, mine's the prong. But um, I, I actually wearing hers is what, wearing hers in deadlifting is what made me want to buy a tapered belt because I have long legs, long arms, but I have a relatively short torso and the regular belt is just too tall. Uh, and I just feel like I can't, I can't get tall enough with it on. So that's when I ordered the tapered belt. Um, and it feels a lot better. And it's like Trevor's has a lot more pliable, like it's not super thick at all. So it really just serves more as a proprioceptive tool for me and still lets me get tall rather than being so rigid. Um, because the rigid torso for me with sumo causes me to get more more kyphotic and not actually get any extension and then I just sumo RDL, so. Uh, okay. <laughs> I kind of rephrased, this is Alexis's question. I kind of rephrased it a little bit because the way that she put it didn't make sense to me, I guess. So 
the question is essentially explain how bench goes from external to internal to external again, like the squat. Okay. So she, she had compared, uh, she sent me a video and she was actually rotating her arms and adducting her elbows in front of before the bar. And I kind of mentioned that it was hard for her to understand what she was doing. She was overly adducting her elbows with the bar and neutral hands. So I, it's going to put you in a poor position. It's going to torque the shit out of her shoulder, which is where she felt it. Uh, it's a common issue where people over adduct their elbows and it torques their shoulder when they bench. The squat, you're comparing apples to oranges. Even though the shoulder joint and the hip joint are similar in structure, they're not similar in function. The shoulder joint has many different movements and we're dealing with different planes of motion. One is, you know, you're squatting down, you're bending from the ankles, knees and hips and not from the shoulders and you're bench pressing, you're, you're bending from the wrist, the elbow and the shoulder and not the hips at all. So it's a little bit different comparing apples to oranges. Now, not everyone when they, I want to go to a little technical here, I'm sorry. Not everyone when they go through a squat is going to go through external to internal to external rotation. That is not how everyone squats. A wide stance squatter is going to stay in external rotation the entire time. They're not going to prone at their feet when they're wide because they'll collapse. A more narrow squatter is going to go below parallel and they're going to have pronation of the foot. It's going to cause internal rotation when they're below parallel and then it goes back to external rotation the way up. Sorry, that's technical. When you see people's knees cave, that's all that's happening. They're going through internal rotation before they come back up to external rotation. The shoulder doesn't do that while we bench press. The shoulder knee is, is the bench press is a purely internal rotation. So if you were to take your arm and put it out in front of you and turn your thumb down, you're going to feel your pec contract as you do so. That is internal rotation. Your pec, which is the prime mover in a bench press, is an internal rotator of the shoulder. It is not an external rotator of the shoulder. And if you're trying to externally rotate your shoulders while you're benching, people say break the bar apart and turn in. Yes, you can do that when you're lowering the bar. If you stay in that position when you're trying to press the bar and you're trying to externally rotate, your elbows are going to stay in front of the bar and you're going to be torquing your shoulder and you're going to be de-inhibiting the pec from doing its job, which is internal rotation because you're trying to externally rotate. So the whole point of putting the bar lower in the hands and internally rotating is to actually stay in internal rotation. So you're just doing the muscle's job of internally rotating the shoulder and horizontally adducting the humerus, your arm bone, towards the center of the body. That should be the focus. Ideally, the elbows should stay under the bar. They shouldn't be behind the bar or they shouldn't be in front of the bar. We're going to try and do everything possible to keep the elbows under the bar for a raw power lift. Gear could be a little bit different. They need to row that bar down to touch their chest. They're going to adduct a lot more because they actually have to pull that bar down to get it to touch. Then they let go of that. The problem is, is when people try and hold that tuck, 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 and then they keep trying to press with that tuck, tuck, you're literally fighting the proper pattern that you're going to do, which is internally rotating your shoulder. So you can't compare a squat internal external rotation to a bench internal external rotation because a raw bench should never go through external rotation. <laughs> it stays in internal the entire time or you're going to have a bad day. When you're trying to overly externally rotate uh, like that hard for a bench is like when that's when we see like the people that are over tucking so, so hard and right. like you're like essentially like you're demonstrating which people can't see on like when they're listening to this but that's when you get that super super low touch point that's when you get like your elbows are basically touching your sides and you have no power anymore you've lost all the power of the torque and the tension that you need if you're overly externally rotating um so that's where you get that lack of like stacked position like we're supposed to be you know there's going to be some variance not everyone's going to be like perfectly stacked from wrist to elbow but that is more ideal that is where things stay the most powerful so trying to overly externally rotate or even like overly internally rotate uh you're either going to get like the super hard flare or the super hard tuck so there's like a middle ground with where you're trying to um set your position and like recently in training trevor and i have noticed that like i try super super hard to uh pack my lats down and that's like causing me to kind of um 
overly externally rotate and then I flare really, really hard off my chest, just the one arm, because it, it wouldn't be simple to be both. You know, of course I have to be more difficult and it's just one arm, but uh, noticing that I, since my lats are strong, I try to tuck them super, super hard. So it causes that super hard uh, flare in my right elbow. And the less that I focused on trying to pack them so hard and focus just more on retracting and letting like the natural pattern go, the less that my elbow uh, flares. Weird how that happens. There's a question. I don't even know how to answer it, but it's really funny. I'm a physical strength player. I suffer from problems. I hope you will help me. I don't know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> Is this like video game code? <laughs> I too suffer from problems. Can you help me? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like he's approaching a mental health therapist with that. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I, I don't know about that one. Yeah. Uh, Josh is bringing us in. Banded rows, row outs for warm-ups help me a lot. Absolutely. Yeah, and that's, that's, that's huge. Of uh, You know, when you're, when you're rowing, so this is a reverse band, reverse band bench when you're pulling the band bench to you, right? This is great because if you're pulling the bands to you and the bar to you, you're not adducting. You're just doing basically an inverted row. You're pulling back. And that's the position we should be in for the bench press. It's the same as an inverted row. When you inverted row, you don't tuck your elbows in front of the bar. You just pull your chest to the bar. So if you can practice an inverted row and, and come up with control and hold it with control, you will understand what your bench pattern should be. The only difference is you're going to be a dual inverted row with bent legs if you have to. So it's similar to your bench pressing. But it should pretty much be, you know, the bar comes down in a straight line. The bar's going to come up and slightly back because the shoulder's going to get involved. But you shouldn't be tucking so much that your bar comes down in a J either. The, the bar should come down relatively straight, not in a J. Yeah. It can come up in a J but it's not going to come down to the J. Yeah. Okay. When to use straps for deadlifts? <laughs> I feel like I was set up for this question. So I answered it and I was like, and actually I have a video I want to put up today that talks about it a little bit further, but um, I don't like people using straps on their main deadlift work for all working sets. I think that's just weakened minds and weakened grip. And that's the people who end up having grip problems or position issues. The majority of your main deadlift work should be done with your bare hands because that's what you're going to do to meet. If for some reason your hands are starting to get tore up or bleeding, by all means, put straps on. If you have secondary deadlift work after your main lift, like snatch grip deadlifts, or maybe you have, maybe you're a sumo puller, you're doing your sumo work and you have conventional work, put your straps on for the conventional work. I don't care. As long as you do your main work with your bare hands, you're never going to have a grip issue or position issue because you're going to learn how to develop it. And I've done programming where I've had like 20 singles and they were all hook grips. For weeks on end, I would just do 20 singles and they were all hook grip. I didn't bitch about it or complain about it because that's what I have to condition myself to is hook grip in a meet. So I condition myself for that. Um, I tape my thumbs so they don't tear. You know, I try to reduce the chances and stuff like that. But it's one of those things where you shouldn't be using them for the primary lifts because then you're going to be that person who has drop issues or hand issues or weak grip issues or position issues, whatever. You're causing them for yourself because you're being mentally weak in the meet. I'm sorry, in training and encouraging the assistance, which you don't need. When to use them is when grip becomes an issue for accessory work. So for example, if you have high rep deadlift sets after high rep RDLs or high, high rep heavy rows, you know, if you have very heavy rows, you're, I don't expect you to do heavy rows with several hundred pounds with your bare hands. If your grip starts to give out, put the straps on so we can actually strengthen the back for the work, but it's not your actual deadlift. So if you want to use them for accessory work, cool. Make sure you're not relying on them. Like you should still be warming up with your bare hands. And when it gets to a point where grip is getting challenged, put them on but you know i put tldr don't read long story short don't be busy yeah i don't mind it for like back off stuff either like i don't mind it for snatch grip i don't mind it for halting stuff rdls if it's going to help you train those heavier um then that's fine but like your main stuff should be 
with your bare hands, especially like if you're mixed grip and stuff too. Um, but if your issue is that you always drop your deadlift in the meat, putting straps on is not the answer. Like that is not, if you're like, oh, well, I'm gonna drop this. Uh, so I'm gonna put on straps that way I don't drop it. That's why you keep dropping it <laughs> because you're not actually like holding anything with your hands. So in order to, in order for your grip to get stronger, you have to train your grip. That's so crazy, I know. Um, but yeah, I don't care about back off work. I think that that's fine, especially snatch grip. I don't care. I, there's been a couple clients recently who have sent me snatch grip videos and they're like, oh, these are so hard. And then they're using like their bare hands. And I'm like, you know, good for you for like doing it. But like, you have to, you can wear straps for those. That's fine. I have Andrea and she, she like mixed grips. <laughs> I told her many times you can use straps. It's not like you better to say like, all right, whatever. But yeah, she grips her snatch grip. And uh, I'm like, oh, whatever works. That's also probably why she snatched grip her uh, second pole in the meet. It was because she was meat photographer at the same time. Just came up like all discombobulated and like went to instinct. I was like, mm, that's not right. <laughs> okay. Uh, another grip question. Why does mixed grip benefit my deadlift more than hook grip? So for a lot of lifters, mixed grip can get them tighter to the bar. It is more difficult for some people to engage their lats and get that tension with a hook grip than it is with a mixed grip. Because with a mixed grip, you're torquing one of the shoulders out into external rotation. It's putting you there. And then when you pull the bar, you're automatically tighter with the bar. Uh, I've had lifters, I have two lifters, or I've had lifters who sometimes have that on opposite positions. So we talked about this before. Chris Bridgeford was better and tighter mixed grip on sumo at the time until we changed his hook grip. He was better and tighter on sumo with mixed grip, but he was better on conventional with hook grip. Riley is the opposite. Riley is better with conventional with mixed grip and tighter to the bar and sumo with hook grip. So it's just one of those things where it's whatever grip you are strongest in is what you should use, regardless of whatever, you know, everybody else says. But if you can create more tension with mixed grip, use mixed grip. If you can create more tension with hook grip, use hook grip. If you find hook grip more comfortable, use hook grip. There's no right or wrong here. It's just whichever way you're strongest is what you should use in the meat because that's your biggest pull. Mm -hmm. There's a, there should be no gatekeeping with grip. <laughs> I feel like, you know, like uh, if you're, if you're stronger with your mixed grip, but you like desperately want a hook grip because you think it makes you superior, but your deadlift is 50 pounds less with the hook grip, then how are you actually superior? Just pull with whatever, like whatever makes you stronger. Um, you know, like if, if I, if my sumo wasn't stronger hook grip, I wouldn't pull my sumo hook grip. I would pull mixed grip. Like that's, I, I pull my conventional mixed grip because it's stronger that way. I, I don't even think I can, I mean, the last time I tried like, mind you my best conventional is 470 or 463 or something in that range i think like i got to 365 with hook and i like could barely hold on to it i don't even i don't understand because i pull sumo hook heavy uh it just the, the position does not jive with me so i'm not just gonna i'm not gonna lose 110 pounds on my deadlift just to like prove a point of like mm, yeah. i'm hook <laughs> superior <laughs> like it's, it's dumb yeah so i don't i don't think that it uh it's just a difference of how you're creating tension and how you find lat tension. It doesn't really matter what grip you use. Stop gatekeeping it. Yeah, it doesn't matter. It, whichever your preference. I know we were in the gym once and a young man had asked us about that. He's like, someone told me that I'll never get my deadlift very far until I learn how to hook grip. He's like, is that true? I was like, no. <laughs> I'm like, this person doesn't have a very good, like, powerlifting IQ to begin with. Not the kid, the person who told him that. Um, doesn't coach anyone's significance, isn't significant himself, no offense anyway, but that's just what, what I'm going to praise it at. And told this kid he wouldn't get anywhere until he learns how to hook grip. And it's like, that's his preference. That doesn't mean everybody else has to do it. It's not how coaching works. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, 
it's not a question, but I feel like it's important to touch on. Um, make a video on proper setup and pull for sumo. And yeah. I, I like the way you answered this. Uh, I'll let you re-answer it, but I have shot many, many videos. They're just in my IGTV tab or whatever, Reels tab, whatever it's called now. Just go in there. There's literally like 16 videos for sumo deadlift help. And most of them are not the same. There's many different ways to lift and to pull. And it's like, if you have this issue, try this. Um, so I'll let you explain how you answer this question because you answered it very, very well. But it's, it's one of those things where people are always looking for a definitive. And it's what we keep pioneering against is having a, this is the best way to squat. This is the best way to go. This is the best way to bench. We keep saying, don't, don't, that doesn't exist. Stop telling people that because what you're saying is this is the best way for you. That may not be the best way for them because they have different more cannot do what you do which is why they're struggling and that's the only tool you have so the whole world you have a hammer and the whole world becomes a nail if you want to have a diverse toolbox you have to learn many 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 ways to lift that barbell so you can teach many 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 ways to lift that barbell yeah that's basically what i said in my story was like that would be possible if there was one way to pull like if there is one way for everyone to pull sumo then there would be one definitive video and there would be no need for any more tutorial videos because that one definitive video was already made so it's like it's not the way the way that you pull is not going to benefit all of your lifters so if you're a coach and you're telling all of your and you're telling i don't know 10 15 20 of your clients like pull this way without any reasoning other than i am strong at this lift this is how i pull or whatever then like that doesn't benefit those lifters at all like it's likely that all of those lifters are built entirely different than you you can be the same height as someone and have totally different like leverages of them um so i hate when it's like i hate when i see videos that are like this is the best way to sumo or this is the best way to xyz like there's always going to be something that's more ideal yes but that is generally the caveat to the more ideal is more ideal for you or for this body type or for these leverages or whatever so um you know like trevor puts up if you have this issue try this and even then even if you do have x issue that solution may not be beneficial for you so it's still like you have to experiment and figure out what it is but there should never be definitively like this is the way to do it if all of your lifters are only lifting the same way and all of their patterns are the exact same someone's getting shafted um you know if you have five lifters that you're telling okay I need you all to pull this way. It's possible that two or three of them are not going to improve uh, as significantly because that's not the ideal position for them. So there's always small tidbits to learn from every single type that you, every single type of pulling that you have or squatting or benching or whatever. There's always some benefit to hearing a cue or trying a cue out because you either learn what to do or what not to do for yourself, but there should never be a one video fits all because like i said if that was if that was the case and it was like this is how everyone should squat this is how everyone should bench this is how everyone should deadlift what would be the point of making any content because those videos would have already been made and you wouldn't be searching for the proper setup or pull for a sumo because it would have already been out there right. so it's likely that you're still just not like the person who asked this question it's likely that you're still not finding what's best for you or you already have and you just feel like it's not the right way because it doesn't look like everyone else's it's not supposed to it's your lift that's correct that's correct you've got to make it your own yeah all right that's about our time it looks like so thank you all who have joined us thank you riley for your time again this week i appreciate you you're welcome thank you who follow 
Culture Nutra, the supplement company we own, uh, and support it. Thank you to those of you who want programming but don't want coaching. You can go to the Cultivating Strength program we have. It's in both of our links in both of our bios. Um, it is free for the first week if you just want to try it and see it. There's no obligation there. You can try it for the first week and go from there for Cultivating Strength. And we will see you guys again next week. And thank you to everyone who shares these. We appreciate that too. Bye. <laughs> I was going to ask, but there you go. <laughs>